Romans chapter 12, this is what Paul says. Therefore, I urge you, my brothers and sisters, family, brothers and sisters, I like that, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God, this is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith God has given you. Just as each one of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ, we who are many form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given us. If a person's gift is prophesying, let him use it in proportion to his faith. If it is serving, let him serve. If it's teaching, let him teach. If it's encouraging, let him encourage. If it's contributing to the needs of others, let him give generously. If it is leadership, let him govern diligently. If it is showing mercy, let him do it cheerfully. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with God's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. <laughs> what? Everybody? If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. But do not overcome, be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. We'll go that far. That's really cool stuff, I think. Do you think so too? Oh my goodness. Before we get into it, uh, I want to first talk for a few minutes about um, the importance and the power of questions. Because questions are really important for us. They're good for us. They cause us to think deeply. They cause us to think carefully. A really good question can be like a doorway through which we can walk, and it sort of brings us into a new space, a, a new reality. Right? Questions, are they take us somewhere. They move us. They change us. They probe us. They have the, the possibility of transforming us. If we let them 
a question sort of have the ability to help us understand who we are, or even better questions can help us understand who we ought to be. If you answer certain questions in certain ways, it can totally and completely change the trajectory of your life. Because every once in a while, we have to, we, every one of us will come upon a question, a profound question that, well, we just have to answer. We have to give an answer to it. And it can change the trajectory of your life. So let me give you a few examples. What are you going to be when you grow up? Like we start asking kids this when they're like three and four years old and, and they answer it. Usually they want to be just like mommy and daddy because mommy and daddy are perfect and good and beautiful and they're their heroes. So I want to do what you do, right? And then they get older and they gain a little bit more independence and they start figuring out who they are and what they're good at and what they want to be like Samuel. What are you going to be when you grow up? don't have to answer. But you got to start thinking about that question. What are you going to be? Because in about four years, you're a freshman. In about four years, you're going to have to figure that out. Like, that's an important question. Are you going to go to college? If you're going to go to college, where are you going to go? How are you going to pay for it? (laughs) Or maybe you'll just enter the workforce, which is perfectly fine too. If you want to enter the workforce, what are you good at? Where do you want to work? What kind of a job do you want to have? You're going to have to start providing for yourselves because me and mom, we're just going to be like, sorry. (laughs) What are you going to be when you grow up? Right? It's an important question. And how you answer that question changes the trajectory of your life. Here's another question. Will you marry me? Now, whatever way you answer that question... (laughs) totally changes your life forever. And I, I, I submit to you that if you don't know the answer before you ask that question, you're making a mistake. <laughs> you better know, right? But that's a good question. It will change your life. If you're married, do you want to have children? How many children do you want to have? We have three boys. Do you want to try for another one? <laughs> we have three boys. I'm not giving you any clues here. Um, so... So questions are really important. You just lost your job. What are you going to do now? The company was downsizing. Now what? You might lose your home because you lost your job. Who are you going to go to for help? You've just retired. How are you going to spend the next 20, 30 years of your life? Are you just about to retire? What are you going to do with all that time? So questions, they can take us somewhere. They can move us. They can change us. They can... They can probe us. They have the ability to help us figure out who we are and better yet, who we ought to be. Now, the reason I bring this up is because for three weeks, we're going to be answering, asking and answering some very important questions. So we're going to ask a question this morning and then we're going to skip next week. And then the next two weeks, we're going to ask two more important questions. And these three cues, these three important questions are questions that I think the church must get right. They ha- we have to get these questions right. We have to answer them well. Because if we get them wrong, it can have all sorts of devastating effects. But if we answer them rightly and we start to live into these answers, then there's no telling what God could do in us and through us in the world. So are you with me? Important questions. Here's the first question we're going to ask and answer. Who are we? Who are we? And I'm not talking specifically, like, we're going to answer this as a church. Like, who are 
we. I'm not, I'm not getting as specific because we already went through a process and we figured out that God is calling us to follow Jesus, to renew lives that renew the world. And the way in which we do that is by connecting people up in a relationship with God, in with one another, and out in service in the world. I'm talking more generally speaking. Who are we? And the reason we're looking at chapter 12 of Romans is I think this is one of Paul's best answers or at least his best attempt at answering this question, who are we? In fact, I almost decided not to preach a sermon this morning. I almost decided to just read this chapter like seven times. Because he's not mincing words here. He's like bringing it straight. And he's, there's nothing, it's not like we read that and we're like, huh, what do you mean by that, Paul? No which probably would have been a good idea because then I, didn't, I wouldn't have to read it all seven times. One of you or seven of you could have done it and I could save my voice. But I didn't, and now I have to talk. So, uh, so this morning, we're going to pull out three things because that's what I do. I always give you three things. It's a holy number. We're going to go with it most weeks. So three things that answer this question, who are we? So... Here's the first thing. The church ought to be a community marked by oneness. I think that's what Paul is getting at here. The church ought to be a community marked by oneness. I think this is super important. Listen to what he says in verse 4. Just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not have all the same functions, so in Christ we form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. Get that. Each member belongs to all the others. The church ought to be a community marked by this profound sense of oneness. So here Paul uses his well-known image for this idea, the image of the body. Like for the body to function properly, each of the members of the body has to be doing what it's gifted and supposed to be doing in order for it to function well. In other places, including in this little passage from Paul, he uses the image and language of family. He says, therefore, I urge you, my brothers and sisters. And he's doing this very, this is intentional. And he does this throughout all of his letters. He uses this language of family. Brothers and sisters, we are a family. Now, if your family is like my family, then your day-to-day operation isn't always marked with constant goodwill and cooperation. Let's just say it like it is, right? Um, Parents disagree with one another. Um, Children on a regular basis disagree with parents, right? Siblings, on a regular basis, uh, disagree with one another. There's so many possibilities in the day-to-day operations of a family unit. There's so many opportunities for disunity. Goals are different. Opinions are different. Thoughts are different. Personalities are different, and on and on and on. But I'm pretty sure that what's true about my family is also true about your family. At the end of the day, we're family. We're blood. 
We are family. Ultimately, we trust each other. Ultimately, we respect each other. Ultimately, we love one another. There isn't much I wouldn't do for the welfare of anyone in my family, not just Renee and the boys, but also my extended family, my blood relatives. Are you with me? Like there's not much I wouldn't do for the welfare of anyone in my family. How about you? You feel that? Yeah. Friends, in Christ, we are family. We're blood-related now in Christ. By his blood, we are family. So friends, Paul's saying that what's true about your own family ought to be true about everyone up in this place too, right? We are family. Problem is, we're not always good at it, are we? I mean, this is a good place to be honest about things. We're just not always good at it. Sometimes we forget that we're related, right? And Jesus knew that we wouldn't be good at it either. Did you know this about Jesus? He knew we were going to stink at this. So there he was. He was just hours away from being betrayed by one of his new family members, one of the 12 This guy named Judas, familiar with that story? He'd be arrested, tried, and crucified as a result of this betrayal, right? So hours before that, he's in the garden and he's praying his last hard-fought prayer for his followers before heading to the cross. You know who he prayed for? He prayed for his followers, but guess what? He also prayed for you. And he prayed for me. Did you know that? Jesus actually, while he was alive, walking around on this planet, prayed for you. Prayed for me. Here's part of what his prayer said. By the way, you can find this in John chapter 17. My prayer isn't for them alone, his followers right there. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. That's us. My prayer is that they may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so the world may believe that you have sent me. There's something so important about our oneness. It is one of the things that bears witness to the world that this Jesus is who he says he is. I in them and you in me, may they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you have sent me. His last prayer for his disciples, his followers, is that they would be one. It's almost as if he was praying, Father, they're not going to be good at this. They're going to stink at this. I know this. These people are going to disagree. These people are going to fight. These people are going to tend to think the worst of one another. It's going to take a miracle from you, Father. Make them one. One of Jesus's greatest desires is that we would be one, that we would experience unity, that we would act like a family, like we're blood-related. And friends, all of us will fall, all of us will fail, all of us will mess things up. But ultimately, at the end of the day, we family. We believe in each other. We trust each other. We respect each other. We love 
each other. Bottom line, we're family. Should I say it one more time? We're family. The church ought to be a community marked by that kind of oneness. Are you with me? Here's the second thing. Who are we? Church ought to be a community marked by selflessness. Am I saying stuff you didn't already know? Because sometimes I feel like, man, y'all already know this. And, but I think that this is a good place for us to do this kind of stuff and talk about stuff that we already know so that we can be reminded, ah, that's who we really are. We ought to be a community marked by selflessness. Listen to his words. Again, he doesn't mince words. He's just telling it straight. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourselves more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith that God has given you. A little further down in verse 10, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honor one another above yourselves. Selflessness. Verse 13, share with God's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Church ought to be a community marked by selflessness. So this one's a tough one too, isn't it? Like, I don't have to work very hard at convincing anyone here that we're all sort of, by nature, selfish people, and we love to look out for, us, for ourselves, right? St. Augustine once said that we are people who, people are curved in on themselves. I like that. I mean, I don't like it, but I like the way he said that, because I can feel that, curved in on ourselves. And I certainly don't. I could. We could all spend the next hour and a half talking about how this is reflected back to us out there, this sort of social disease of selfishness. We could talk about that. I don't have to because we all see it on a regular basis. So instead, we're going to play a game. This is a game that we've played before. In fact, this is a game we played six weeks after we launched public worship. But we're going to play it again because there are a whole lot of people in this room who haven't played this game. So if you remember it, that's okay. Play it anyway. Now I'm going to ask you to do something, and I want you to do it immediately without thinking about it. I realize that seems like a risky thing for you, like it might be dangerous, like you might embarrass yourself. I really do. I want you to do something, and I want you to do it without thinking about what you're doing, okay? I just want you to do it. I promise you we're family. I'm not going to embarrass you here. Like, I'm your brother. You can, you can trust me, okay? So here's what I want you to do. I want you to, with your right or your left, whichever you write with, index finger, on your forehead, write the capital E. Go. Okay, now I want you to pay attention to which way you wrote the E. Right? How many of us wrote the E with the prongs facing our right hand? Okay. <laughs> How many of us wrote the E on our foreheads facing our left over here? Oh, so good. I'm glad, right? Now, here's why this is interesting. Professor Adam Galinsky at Northwestern University has discovered that those of us who wrote the E facing left are more group-oriented people, others-oriented people. If you wrote the E facing left, you sort of have this default thing in your brain that automatically adjusts 
to another person's perspective. In other words, you wrote the E on your forehead so that someone else could read it on your head correctly, right? Now, for those of us who wrote the letter E facing right, I'm one of you, by the way, Galinsky has found that we're more individualistic. We find ourselves in positions where we rely heavily on ourselves. We are self-oriented people. Just a little self-reflection tool, right? right? A little self-assessment. If, if you wrote the E facing your right, um, we got a little more work to do than some other people. And spouses, you can't use this against your spouse if they wrote the, the letter to the other way, right? Because in reality, no matter which way you wrote the E on your forehead, you still got some of that selfishness coursing through your veins. We all, we all do. Some of us just have more work to do than others. See, selflessness, it doesn't come easy to us. In our brains, there's something weird. It's almost as if it doesn't make sense to us, especially living in this culture, in the world in which we live. Selflessness is something that we have to work at. Like we have to be conscious about it. We have to be intentional about it. Selflessness is something that we ought to think about every single day of our lives. In fact, I think when our feet hit the ground in the morning, or maybe even before our feet hit the ground in the morning, we should all be thinking, who am I going to serve today? Like that ought to be a question we regularly ask ourselves. Who am I going to serve today? Because the best way, I think, to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. Come on, Paul. How in the world are we supposed to do that? Maybe the best way to do what is right in the eyes of everyone is to just serve as many people as we can and to just sort of make it part of who we are, like our, it's our DNA. We ought to be a community marked by selflessness. Here's the last thing. Who are we? We ought to be a community marked by love. Surprise, anyone surprised? We ought to be a community marked by love. Again, Paul's words, love must be sincere. Hate what is evil, cling to what is good, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. And maybe this reality sort of wraps up the other two things, oneness and selflessness and sort of makes them one, like puts them together in another place. Paul lists a bunch of virtues, and then he says, but also put on love because it binds all the other things together in perfect unity. I say, I say this to, to people I'm marrying, right? Don't forget love. You have to love one another. And what better way to achieve oneness, what better way to, to, to show selflessness is by showing love. We ought to be a community marked by love. So someone asked Vince Lombardi what it took to, to have a winning team, to have a championship team. Do you know who Vince Lombardi is? Like the Super Bowl trophy is named after him, the Lombardi trophy, right? So one of the best coaches ever. Somebody asked him, what does it take to make a winning team? And this is what he said. There are a lot of coaches with good ball clubs who know the fundamentals and have plenty of discipline but still don't win. Then you come to the third ingredient. If you're going to play together as a team, you have to care for one another. You've got to love each other. 
He's talking about a football team. A football team. And he says, if you want to win championships, you have to love each other. He goes on. Each player has to be thinking about the next guy and saying to himself, if I don't block that man, Paul's going to get his legs broken. I have to do my job well in order for him to do his job well. The difference between mediocrity and greatness, he said, is love. On a football team. He's not wrong. The church ought to be a community marked by oneness selflessness. And that third thing, oh, love. Do you know what love is? You know what love is. Love is sacrificing everything your entire life for the faith. Love is Jesus giving up heaven in order to become one of us, to put on human skin and walk around and show us who God is and who we ought to be. Love is Jesus giving up his life. Love is Jesus on the cross. Who are we? We ought to be a people marked by the same sort of radical love that Jesus has already showed us. So I'm going to end by asking some questions because questions are good. They open us up. It's like a doorway through which we walk. It's like we enter into a new reality. I'm going to ask us some questions because they change us. They probe us. They transform us. They help us understand who we are and maybe better yet, who we ought to be. Here are some questions. If we can't live as a family, who's going to join us? Who's going to want to be part of this? If we can't live as a family, who's going to want to join us? If we can't rid ourselves of the social disease of gossip and disrespect, who's going to join us? If we can't get past the social disorders of hyper-individualism and selfishness and open ourselves up to others, who's going to join us? If we can't even show each other grace, who's going to join us? If we can't love each other with the same kind of radical love that Jesus has already shown us, given to us, who's going to join us? If we can't be transformed like Paul says, like literally changed, becoming new, transformed. If we can't be different than what we see out there in the world and what we find out there in the world, who's going to join us? Are you getting the sense that questions are important? Yeah. Who are we? I'd be a community marked by oneness or family. I'd be a community marked by selflessness. We give each other. We give ourselves to each other. We serve one another. We serve alongside of one another. We ought to be a community marked by love, the same kind of radical love that Jesus showed the whole world. Let's do this really well. What do you say? Let's pray. God, thank you for 